Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You know I do a lot of giveaways, so I encourage you to follow. I'll be giving away a book um, this weekend, so definitely follow. Um, also, you can check us out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. I thank you so much for supporting the show and sharing with friends and family. I hope they were helpful and you learned a lot of information. Well, this morning I have the honor of speaking with a Pulitzer Prize winner, a National Book Award winner, a historian, a professor. She's from Texas, and she wrote a book about Juneteenth. It's called On Juneteenth. And uh, we're going to talk about that today. Good morning, Annette Gordon-Reed. Good morning to you. Thank you again for agreeing to come on the show. You have so much knowledge to share, and you're debunking a lot of myths that are making people feel uncomfortable again. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, what is this now? Um, You know, people are like, I'm not liking this lady. She's talking about (laughs) somebody's in love with somebody across the color lines and you know, black people are able to speak French, and what in the world? <laughs> so you are from Texas, yes? Yes, I am. And you're from Conroy, Texas, and that has a, a deep history. We'll talk about that a little bit. Tell me a little bit about growing up there. What were some of your favorite things to do as a young child? Well, as a kid, it was a typical kind of small town, riding my bike, uh, playing baseball with the, you know, with the, people in the neighborhood running around, Mm -hmm. uh, just having, you know, freedom that my kids who grew up in Manhattan have not had, obviously. Uh, So I I enjoyed being around my family. We were close to my grandparents and my cousins and so forth. So I I remember a kind of easy uh, existence uh, in the the country pretty much. Now, do you remember – having to deal with racism. I know you went to a a school and you were like the only black child there. Can you tell us a little bit about that at Anderson, I think the name was? Uh, I went to first grade about 10 years after Brown versus Board of Education, and the school districts in the South were being really recalcitrant. They were coming up with all these ways to, you know, to avoid Brown and integration. And in my hometown, they came up with, and in Texas, other parts, something called a freedom of choice plan where you were supposed to, white people were supposed to pick white schools and black people were supposed to pick black schools. My parents decided to send me to a white school to integrate the schools of my town. So, mm-hmm. uh, yes, I was there, you know, as a six-year-old, uh, I'm the only black uh, kid in the school and in the town in a white school. And it was, it was, it was kind of tough. I mean, my teachers were wonderful to me. They were very, very supportive, but, some of the kids were nice and some weren't. And uh, it was a very, very 
intense experience, I should say. Uh, I grew up, you know, in, in a place that was still, you know, segregated in ways when we went to the doctor. There was mm-hmm. a separate waiting room for white people and black people. When we went to the movies, we had to sit in the balcony. Black people sat in the balcony. And so that was my earliest, you know, as a four- and five-year-old and six-year-old, those were my memories of what dealing with the white community was like. Remember I said before, I thought it was a happy childhood, but when I was in my community, in the black community with my family, it was wonderful, but there was always Mm -hmm. that tension with whites in the area. What's this deal with the white milk? You drinking white milk. (laughs) (laughs) Tell them them a little bit about that story. Oh, yeah, that was really crazy. This is a a girl in my my class who uh, said to me one day after we got into an argument, um, that I drank white milk uh, instead of chocolate milk the way everybody else drank because I wanted mm-hmm. to be white like her. Uh, and the reason is, of course, my mother just didn't want, didn't think it made sense for me to be drinking chocolate milk every morning, you know, when we yeah, bring the yeah. milk truck around, um, that that was, that was too much. Uh, and it was just funny because this was somebody who had been somewhat friendly to me, but it kind of showed me that there was, always the chance that even a, a white person who was a friend of mine at that time, if they got mad at you, race would come back into the picture, you know? Mm. That she was always thinking, you know, you would not know it on a day-to-day basis that she was thinking about race, but the moment we had an argument that all of a sudden it kind of came out, and you're drinking white milk because you want to be white like me, and I was like, you crazy? I mean, what? <laughs> first place, it's a stupid idea, but second, why would you even think that I wanted to be white. And so she was mm-hmm. thinking that she was special because of that, and I wanted to be like her. So it was really well, crazy, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, your parents, the way you described them, really gave you a backbone of confidence, I feel, and to to deal with these things. And some of them were harsher than others. I mean, you did get a little violence uh, enacted on you. The boy punched you in the chest. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that... This this is a this was sort of the part about integration that we don't talk about very much, and that is that there were members in the black community who felt that they lost something, and they did lose something because when they integrated the schools, they took lots of the black teachers out of the classrooms, so black kids lost role models, and white kids lost the opportunity to have black teachers as role models. My mother remained in the classroom; she was a an English teacher. But I was standing in line one day, and a black kid who knew who I was, and I think blamed me for integration into town, just started punching me in the chest, you know, uh, because he was, I didn't know who he was, you know, I didn't yeah. know his name or anything like that, but I understood what he was upset about. And, they, you know, it was the court that ordered desegregation eventually that struck down, the Supreme Court struck down these freedom of choice plans, and then everybody had to integrate. But he saw me, he knew that I was the first person to have, you know, ventured into this, into a white school, and he blamed me for this. And so, yeah, so there was tension on from white people, and there was tension from some black people. Other black people were supportive, but there were, I, I understood why, you know, I understand now why, I don't understand why you would hit me, but I understand why they were angry, because they loved their school. Booker T. Washington, which was the school, was the center of the black community there. And the teachers were role models. People looked up to them. And then when they they brought the kids together, but they were not willing to fully integrate teachers into, 
you know, into into uh, positions of power and administration mm. in the in the school district. Yeah, you discussed about the relationship that black children have with their black teachers is different than the relationship you had with your white teachers. And um, I guess I can relate to that because I went to one school that was mostly black, and then I had to go a couple times a week for a, a, a gifted program, and it was mostly white. And um, there is a different, just a different feeling. I, I, you can't, like, really, I don't know how to say it, but, I, like, I had an eighth-grade teacher. She was black, and she was teaching us Swahili. It was just this energy with her. You know, it was this, like, real connection. And then I had another teacher. Um, she was a music teacher. She was white. Great teacher. But the, it was just not the same thing as this black woman who was teaching me Swahili, you know. Well, um, and and uh, go ahead. No, no, yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, my mother said to me, my mother, my parents became a, a somewhat disillusioned with integration as they saw how it had played out. And she said she loved all of her students, black and white, you know, she loved them and loved teaching, but she said she'd gone to, she went to Spelman and then she went to TSU uh, for a master's program and then got married, she had us and then didn't continue with it, but she said she'd gone to school to become a teacher to teach black students. So she was part of that generation of people who thought about uplift the race, you know, that they yeah. were supposed to yeah. be, you know, that everybody was supposed to be making a contribution to the black struggle and this was going to be hers. And so when she ended up teaching in the high school, she had wonderful students. And one of the great things about having written this book is that I've heard from a number of them, black and white, about how, what she meant to them. Um, okay. But she said, you know, we couldn't talk to black students the way they did when they were at Washington. She, they'd say, you know, it was not just reading, writing, and arithmetic. It was, you know, you have to do these things because our people are, you know, on the move and we're, we're, we're going forward. And all. I mean, it was they could that energy that you're talking about uh could be there because there was a larger purpose to it as well well she didn't mm. have to to exhort white kids like that because the society was made for them i mean she influenced them individually but it wasn't a you know what i mean it wasn't like a, a group thing uh, yes. that uh that uh that reason for exhorting people forward so you know she had to find a different mission and she continued to love teaching and as i said the students loved her as well but that's not why what she thought she was going to be doing when she went to college and went to you know graduate school to become a, a teacher. Now, one of the things I learned uh, in reading your book, very simple, kind of just a childlike amazement, Six Flags, <laughs> Texas, and the Six Flags, and the and and the amusement park. Tell the audience a little bit what does that mean, Six Flags, in relation to Texas. Well, Six Flags refers to the Six Flags that flew over Texas. Uh, over the course of its history, you know, we have Spain and you have France, we have the Confederate. It has every nation that had some interest in Texas. And the amusement park originally started out with uh, areas that were supposed to represent the time period, when it was under Spanish influence, when it's under mm. the Confederacy even. You know, the Confederate flag flew over it as yes. well, the American flag. And so uh, when it goes out to other places... <laughs> There may not have been six flags in New Jersey. Oh, you know, in other other places where the theme park is, it, it exists, yeah. but it started it started right outside of Dallas uh, when I was a little girl. And I talk in the book about taking a trip there, the first trip to uh, Six Flags, which was which was a big deal to us when we were little kids. And it was called Six Flags Over Texas. And every time somebody says Six Flags, 
in my mind, I always say over Texas. <laughs> right, right. You say that in the book, like, you guys are yeah. doing something here. Yeah. Um, now, there are other people that lived in Texas uh, before you, and you talk about the history of other Africans, African Americans that lived there. One of the people that lived in your town was Bob White. Tell the mm-hmm. audience about who Bob White was and, and, and uh, his story. Well, Bob White, uh, this is a story that I first heard from my grandfather when I was a little girl. Bob White was a black man who had been born in Livingston. I was born in Livingston, Texas myself, and then moved to Conroe as, a, as an infant. But we would visit my grandparents in Livingston, and he told me about Bob White. Bob White was a man accused of having raped a white woman mm-hmm. and uh, was sentenced to death, sentenced to the electric chair, and back in the days when you could do that. And uh, he, his case, and I didn't know this until I was working on the book, his case went all the way up to the Supreme Court because while he was in jail, the Texas Rangers would take him out of the jail at night, take him out into the woods, tie him to a tree, and beat him until he confessed. Mm-hmm. And so this question of, you know, due process, is it, can you do this, went yeah. all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, no, uh, you can't beat a confession out of somebody that violates the due process clause. So they sent it back for a new trial. When they had the trial in my hometown, because they moved it from Livingston, they moved it to Conroe. When they had the trial, while he was in the courtroom, Ruby Cochran, the woman he was supposed to have raped, her husband came into the courtroom and walked up behind Bob White and shot him and killed him. And right there in front of everybody, in front of the judge, the jury, spectators, the police, everybody, and he mm-hmm. hands the gun to the bailiff. And he's tried, and he's acquitted in about three or four minutes. And so this was a crushing, you know, lynching had happened in Conroe beforehand, but this was crushing in lots of ways because I think people had hoped, you know, with the case going up and getting a new yeah. trial that there might justice might be done. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is that he's killed and nothing happens to him. Now, the other thing my grandfather had told me back before I found out about this case, um, working on this book a long time ago as a little girl, actually, is that Ruby Cochran and Bob White were having an affair. And when it was discovered, it became a case. It was turned into a case of rape. He said that yes. Bob White foolishly <laughs> talked about this you know, talked about, told people. Mm, mm, mm. He said, my, my grandfather said they were going together. That was the phrase he used, uh, that they were going together. And people knew that. And then when her husband found out about it, it becomes a case of rape. Of, uh, rape. And eventually he is killed in open courtroom and nothing happens to the person who, with pre- premeditation, murdered him in front of all these people here. So that's the kind of power that white men had in Conroe, they could walk into a courtroom and shoot somebody, and nothing would happen to them. You know, and I mean, we have this him. situation. We feel, many African Americans. I don't know if you feel to this day, somebody may not be getting shot in the court, oh, yeah. but they are getting yeah. killed by being put away for longer sentencing. You know, and nothing. Or they're is killed done during to, arrest. They're killed oh, during oh, arrest. So Police encounters. There's a, yes. There's a fear of this white power through the police 
one of the things you mentioned in your book is the issue of patriarchy. And I love that you say it's something to the effect that patriarchy is not just against women in a sense, but it's also this like competition between males and that yes. the white male is at the top or was at the top and policed in a sense, if you will, black men and their access to the type of women they could be with. They could be oh, with yeah, black women, but they couldn't be with anybody else. And so that yeah, was a, yeah. a, a, another, a form of policing, if you will. Um, and white men, white men had access to black women, to white women, yes. to every kind of woman. But black men were, you know, restricted to black women. And, you know, the, that kind of policing isn't just in the past. Obviously, as you're saying, it, it, this kind of thing happens today as well. Now, this book on Juneteenth, tell the audience, what is Juneteenth? Many people may not know what that is, even though we have a national holiday now. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, national holiday. Well, Juneteenth uh, celebrates June 19th, uh, 1865, when Gordon Granger goes to a general in the Union Army, goes to Galveston to take over Texas, the District of Texas, and he makes the announcement that slavery is now over in Texas. Now, a lot of people mistakenly think that black people in Texas, the enslaved in Texas, did not find out about the Emancipation Proclamation, which was signed two years before then, until Granger says this. They knew. But the problem was that the Confederate Army kept fighting. It surrendered. The Confederate Army in the area of Texas and the Southwest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. surrendered at the beginning of June. They did not surrender until the beginning of June 1865. And once they did that, that's when Granger could go in and make this announcement. And it is a day that has been celebrated ever since then, even though in the immediate aftermath of the announcement, a number of white people in Texas reacted badly to this, obviously, uh, the end of slavery, and they whipped people. They assaulted people sometimes for, for celebrating. But Texans kept on, black Texans kept on celebrating, and for 156 years there's been uh, there have been celebrations of the day and commemorations of the day, wh- whatever word you wish to use, recognition mm-hmm. of the day from that time period, even in the face of a lot of, of hostility. Now, when, what, I mean, did they able to walk off the plantation? I mean, where would they go? How did they make money? They were free, but then what? Well, they were freed of... Not long after uh, Granger makes this announcement, the Freedmen Bureau opens in Galveston. And Union soldiers, where the Union soldiers were, they were able to enforce contracts between um, the former enslaved and their enslavers. In places where they, could, they were not, there were a lot of people who were probably forced, you know, who were kept in bondage. Uh, mm. In effect, you know, not legal bondage then, but... A, you know, um, bondage because there were no soldiers or other people to to defend them. But in most places where there were, in many of the places where there were black people, black people in Texas are concentrated mainly in the eastern part of the state, mm-hmm. West Texas, and West Texas not so much. But where the Union Army was, they were um, able to enforce uh, the end of slavery, and eventually Reconstruction starts, and and Texas in order to come back into the union. I mean, they abide by uh, uh, these rules, but uh, it was it was tough going, uh, tough going for people. They knew, I mean, they celebrated the end of legalized slavery, but they understood 
it's clear they understood that they had a, a battle ahead of them, and they did for many years. They're still battling now, as a matter of fact. When <laughs> you think of voter suppression and all the things that are going on down there now, uh, but it was a mix of celebration in the midst of a lot of hostility. Now, some people got together and bought a park. Yes, they did. Some got together. Talk to them Mm -hmm. about this park and the meaning of it for African Americans in Texas. Well, in 1876, four black men pooled their resources in Houston and bought land for the specific purpose of being able to celebrate Juneteenth. This is how important this was to them uh, to, to do this, as I said, even in the face of a lot of hostility. And they called it Emancipation Park. It was first, it was not called Juneteenth at the beginning. That's something that came later. It was called Emancipation Day. So they had Emancipation Park, which is still there. I have been to Emancipation Park a couple of times to celebrate Juneteenth. Uh, it was my family. And the, it's, a, I think, just a wonderful example of black resilience uh, in the face of as I said, hostility to purchase this land, something not just for them, but something that would be there for posterity. They're making a plan for the future. And the park has been there, and they have celebrations there, and I imagine it's going to be a big deal <laughs> in 2022 uh, when uh, you have a celebration, the first one that we're able to do after it became a federal holiday. There was technically one this year, but I think people are going to do it out really well uh, next year. And I'd actually like to go down there and see what it will be like. Yeah, I mean, hopefully this COVID drama will have um, eased Oh, let's and, hope so. Let's hope and so. And people can, you know, get back to being close together, literally physically close and, and have that energy because there is a difference. I mean, if you talk to performers or music or musicians, there is this uh, gap that they feel of not having the audience. So we as people need an audience, too. Uh, we cannot be on that island. Now, um, there was a way of celebrating Juneteenth. Some people used to eat goat. I think that's what you wrote in the book. Um, yes, yes. I don't yeah, know where that came from, but that that, that was a part yeah. of it. I have no idea where that came from, but that has been a part of the tradition. Our family wasn't big on that, but red soda water, <laughs> which we drank as a little kid, you know, that's, okay. that's supposed to be a part of it, a red drink. And some people mm-hmm. do red velvet cake. Uh, I think I, I read from a, a historian, a person who's who food historian who studies black folkways, said that hibiscus tea was what the the original drink, which is red, okay, uh, what red. people drank mm-hmm. before. They obviously didn't have soda water, which we call soda water, soda pop. Um, they didn't have that, and so, and in my family, we had because we're in Texas, we had tamales. My grandmother made tamales. And that's a that's a twist on all of it. Uh, tamales are a holiday food in Texas and, and California, other places as well. So that became a part of our our family tradition is having now those as well. So yeah, there's food associated with it. These get-togethers typically at Emancipation Park. There were speeches and music, and obviously sometimes religious uh, a religious component to it as well, a prayer or whatever. But Mostly, it's. I remember throwing firecrackers, <laughs> listening to music, and yeah. being, being with family. It's a family holiday, really. That's that's above all, and it, it makes sense because so many people were separated during slavery, and 
a lot of the black traditions and with family reunions and things like that, I think are about this need to gather everybody up and be with the community. And, the, and this holiday exemplifies that. Now, what do you see happening for yourself in the future? What, what, what is your next book um, going to be about? Or are you going to write another book? Um, is it going to be controversial? Are you going to you know, make people make people uncomfortable? Because we didn't need to talk about the uncomfortable stuff yet. But, uh, they'll read about well, it in the book. <laughs> well, I'm going to do another volume of the, the Hemings family story. Uh, the Hemings is Monticello was about mm-hmm. Elizabeth Hemings and her family from, you know, the 1770s up until 1826 when they were all dispersed when Jefferson dies. I'm going to take the next generation of people and talk about them in the 19th century during slavery and freedom and so forth. And uh, so I'll be back to the Hemings family again. Wow. That's, that's going to be really interesting. I can't wait to read that. I, I definitely would love to have you back on. Uh, once I read it, I, uh, <laughs> of course, uh-huh. and um, talk about that because people are really itching to find out, you know, what happened and, you know, you broke open, um, I guess, or broke down myths that people kept saying, oh, this is his mistress, oh, he, she wasn't his mistress, that never happened. Um, oh, yeah. Mainly that, that never happened. <laughs> yeah, mainly that never happened. Um, you know, it, it's just crazy. Well, thank you so much. I'm just, just so honored to uh, speak with you this morning about your book on Juneteenth, and uh, I wish you wish you much success uh, in the, with this book and also your future books. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Okay, you have a great weekend, okay? Stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. I just got off the phone with Annette Gordon-Reed. She is a professor. She's a writer. She's a lawyer, a historian. Uh, I'm going to be giving away some copies of her book on Juneteenth, so you want to follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Also, check me out on Facebook Saturday mornings with Joy Keys. And also on Facebook, we also have a page. We have a group. And I find that people are getting the announcements faster on the group site. So it's the same name, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Um, group and um, so check that out and then also I'm on Instagram Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail dot com. I'd love to hear from you. You can listen to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. You guys have a great weekend. Stay tuned. I'm going to be talking about some guns. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.